The story I heard about them recording this is that the only way they could slow down enough to get it was it had to be recorded at 2 a.m. after the cocaine had worn off. Hello, hello, and welcome, everyone, to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and guys that complain about basically everything get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimer's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We're going to give some deep dives. We're going to give some hot takes. We are going to make fun of this album. We're going to make fun of the band. We're going to make fun of everything there is to make fun of in music because while we love music and respect anyone who has put themselves and their efforts on tape, there is certainly a lot to complain about and a lot to make fun of. At the end of the episode, after we have listened to some individual tracks and done our deep dives, we're going to vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. Now, because you are probably staring at the link right now, you know that we are covering the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young album from March 11, 1970 called Deja Vu. To give you guys a taste of what we have been listening to this week, we are going to play part of the opening track on this album. It is the song Carry On. One morning I woke up and I knew you would A new day, a new way, and new hours to long. Go Excellent, excellent, excellent. By way of introductions, I'm going to throw it around the room now for some tweet-length reviews, and I am going first to Adam. Hey, everybody, this is Adam, and my tweet is Deja Vu, a perfect title for an album that, after not listening to it for quite literally 20 years, I could hear the next song starting in my head for nearly every track on this album. All righty. Phil, what do you got for me? This is absolutely a classic record. And I was, I was excited when this made the list this week. But what I really comes to mind this week is I want to give a what's up to Kevin, who wrote in the mail list a couple weeks back. I was at Spock over the weekend. I saw Derek Truck <laughs> sit in on first two. It was sick. It was like shades of when Santana sit in with fish, like 91, 92. Yemen, the llama. That first two was a can't miss. So Phil's tweet length review. First tube was awesome. <laughs> Don't miss it, Kevin. Don't miss it. Shoehorned fish reference. <laughs> Rob, what do you got for us? 
Look, I can read the room here. I know our audience. So if, as I suspect, you're out there trying your damnedest to avoid things like excellently crafted songs, otherworldly <laughs> expert-level four-part harmonies, and a depth of production value mixed with live band earthy energy, then by all means, steer clear, sir, of Deja Vu. <laughs> All right, and this is Tom. I will be leading us down this journey into the background of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and the album Deja Vu. My tweet-length review is, what do you get when you take enough ego for at least four separate bands and try to cram it into one album? An era-defining masterpiece that burns so hot it could only be a singular event. I am an atheist, but if God had a voice, it would come out as a four-part CSNY <laughs> harmony. <laughs> Uh, fair awesome so we're going to transition quickly into our general impressions i'm going to guess you guys hated this week it just sucked for you <laughs> garbage terrible Total garbage. Well, tom you mentioned you mentioned in the pre-roll that coming back to this album and we say it all the time with headphones it's a completely different experience than you know hearing it on classic rock on your crappy car radio so this was a great chance to really hear what they spent you know a thousand hours on in the studio and you, you really start to pick it apart when you get that deep dive listen so this week was was a joy for me getting in and again listening to this loud and in headphones i'll echo that with some slight variation i have definitely spent some time listening to this record on headphones before. Obviously, the intensity of the listen this week and the multiple listens was great. What was slightly surprising to me was just how confidently they put killer after killer after killer on this record. The totality of the record is what blew me away upon re-listening. Well said. Yeah, I found that this album unfolded like a budding rose for me upon re-listens. I primarily listen to this i have a an original pressing of it that i stole from my parents when i moved out west so i listen to this mostly on vinyl i listen to it nice my speaker system in my house i'm not doing a headphone listen and there was so much stuff that was happening low in the mix and not that big bombastic out front harmony that really did blow me away and again the care that was put into it was pretty phenomenal and this is not necessarily a complaint. I don't even know if it's a critique. It's just a true statement that the reality is that this is a CSN album with two Neil Young songs on. <laughs> it really does feel like Crosby, Stills, and Nash put a bunch of shit down, and then Neil Young came in and was like, why don't you put some bitch in harmony on these songs for me? And to great effect, Neil Young writes fantastic songs, but it did have a little bit of a, I wouldn't say schizophrenic feel, but you could tell there was a separateness going on between the works of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who seemed to work very closely together, and Neil Young, who seemed to be a little bit more like a singular entity out there doing his thing with Crosby, Stills, and Nash coming in as a good backing group. I'm sure we're going to get into it in the history, but I have to admit, I didn't hear that when I listened, nor all the other times I listened. So I learned a lot about the record this week, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the story and why what you just said fits what happened accurately. But I just have to say, as a listener, I didn't exactly feel that way. I think that Neil Young's voice meshes well with the other songs. I think the whole record is a showcase for differences in songwriting approach. And so you look at that first side of the record, and it's just five different songwriters doing their thing, 
I think, each very well. So I guess I'm just pointing out that since CSN was already a mix, a mix of approaches to the songwriting craft anyway, to me, adding Neil Young in as a listener anyway, didn't never bumped me. Oh, I'm not saying it bumped me. It certainly didn't take away from the experience, but I do feel like, I mean, Neil Young is not on a lot of the tracks on this album. And so you can kind of tell when Neil Young's there and when he's not there. And I feel like the continuity of the songs when Neil Young's not there is a little bit more cohesive than when he is there because he is this singular, weird, brilliant individual. And he has a voice that is, you're right, it mixes well with the harmony. I don't, first of all, I don't know who told him he could sing. They were absolutely right. (laughs) But it does not strike me immediately as like this guy who sounds like an old lady with vocal cord trauma is going to be the <laughs> one of the greatest singers of all time. But he fucking is. He really is. I'd never heard Neil Young described that way, but that's that's uh, interesting and maybe accurate. <laughs> I had some notes, too, that you start to see glimpses of his insanely frenetic guitar playing as well mm-hmm. on this album that will come out later in his in his career that I'm actually not a huge fan of, but you can hear that start here. So it's interesting to kind of have all these things come together and you can kind of see them also branch out. Well, while we're talking about guitar playing, uh, carry on has really cool lickage at the end. Uh, That's Steven stills, right? I feel like he's not really in the sixties guitar God lexicon, but he sounds badass and wooden ships isn't on this record but if this is him that's definitely him on wooden ships and wooden ships crushes yeah he's good i agree and he's underrated as a guitar player and i'm sure we'll get into it in the backstory but i'm actually i'm personally still a little confused as to exactly why they added neil young to the band other than to bring his songs to the table but it sort of seemed like it was about making the band rock harder and this one does rock harder than the predecessor, the self-titled record. Well, I mean, Stephen Stills and Neil Young had been in, what, Buffalo Springfield together? So maybe there was some other history. Maybe there was something else that still thought Neil Young. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bit of history, yeah. No, honestly, I get the wanting Neil Young to come in to add more of the electrified version of folk Because Neil Young is, in many ways, a folk guy playing electric songs. And I think that Crosby, Stills, and Nash, generally speaking, wanted to be folk guys playing acoustic songs. Or they were, at their best, folk guys playing acoustic songs. And Neil Young does add the rock. But there are songs that rock that Neil Young is not on. But in general, I do think that they recognize the talent. And actually, I saw an interview with David Crosby where he said, you know, if I had 25 people in my band, I'd still want to bring Neil Young on because of the songs, man. It's the songs. And I got to agree with that statement. Neil Young writes some great songs. And if you have the access to a person who can put those kind of songs in your album, how are you going to pass that up, right? Yeah, right. Here's the thing, too. Speaking of being a songwriter, I get that game recognized game, but Neil Young is already well on his way to a successful solo career. Pretty much after this, he goes and starts recording the songs for After the Gold Rush, arguably his masterpiece. So some part of me, if I was in Crosby's situation or Nash or Stills, I'd be thinking he's probably holding back the best songs for his solo career. And yet. And yet he still contributes some absolute bangers. That's what I'm saying. 
Right. If this is the the D squad that he's throwing in here, then uh, it's pretty impressive. He's like, ah, helpless. It's just dag, just D-A-G all day. Dag, dag, dag. Just fucking play it. <laughs> but the thing about Neil Young, which is impressive and will always be impressive, is he is obscenely prolific. He put out like five albums in the four years after this band broke up, some of really? which are just wow. absolute stuff. Stunners. We're talking after the gold rush and harvest among those stunner albums. It's not like he was just keeping the good stuff for later. He was just writing and writing and writing and writing all the time. It was a modality that I don't think the rest of the band got into. That's interesting. I hadn't put these together until now, but like you're talking about electric folk and like this is very much the mindset of Bob Dylan and the band too at that time, right? Like they're 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 writing 100 songs a year, 200 songs a year. Some of them probably a lot of them suck, but like it's definitely like a working man's mentality. Yeah. They really do say that the best song is the song that you can release. It's not the song that you work on forever and never get out there. Like, well, we're just going to write a good song and then we're going to write another good song and write another good song. It's the, you know, perfect is the enemy of the good type of mentality. Right. I heard an interview with a Motown songwriter recently on like 88.5. I forget his name. He's like more of a back of shop guy. And he, t- he was like a part of our songwriting team. And he talked about how like it would always happen fast. They always talked about like good songs come real fast, like real fast. Maybe you, you set it down and you say, oh, I'll sort of intellectually write a verse or two later. But like the whole fucking thing is there in like 90 minutes. And if it's not, like you don't have shit. And he said like, that's the name of the game, right? Like, a song that we're not going to talk about, which was one of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young's biggest hits is that song, Ohio. And the story goes, Neil Young and David Crosby are hanging out in San Francisco and they get the newspaper that has the picture of the Kent State Massacre on it. Right. And Neil Young sits down and writes Ohio right then and there. And David Crosby calls up his dude and he's like, book us a studio right now. We're going to start packing our shit up and you're going to call <laughs> me coming. back and tell and me tell where to where go. Yeah, and yeah. they go to the studio and they record it in like 90 minutes. And wow. that turned into one of not just their biggest hits, but an amazing song that really does define an era of protest music that I kind of wish existed to this day. There's not a whole lot of protest music now. Everything is kind of a little bit more bubblegum and good times. Can we think of another example of a song that was turned around that quickly and thus was able to be that topical? Does that kind of stuff still happen? It must. It's like but... South Park. Yeah, right. South Park. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had released it within three weeks of that recording session. That song was out there. And so, I mean, that's... That's nuts. Yeah, that's that's cool. awesome. It's really yeah. cool. Now... We have a lot of background to get into, so we're not going to belabor the general impressions, but before we get into our background, we are going to do a little bit of By the Numbers, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. First number we're going to throw out is the number one. That is the number of gigs that they had played together as a band before they did their epic 3 a.m. set at Woodstock. That Woodstock set, gig number two, and that solidified (sighs) them as a force in the musical industry. Two million, which is the amount of money in 1970 dollars that they had for pre-orders for Deja Vu before it was even released. They were so 
highly anticipated that $2 million in 1970 money for What is that, $10 million now? It's like $10 million. million I don't know. Yeah, it's like $10 yeah, million. that's crazy. Number 14 is the number of days it took this album to go gold, which is pretty damn quick. A fortnight, <laughs> you go gold. That's got to wow. feel pretty good. Yeah. Is that 100000 or 10000 500000 Yeah, right. gold is, is half a million. 88 is the number of weeks that this album spent on the charts, <laughs> but it was only number one for one week in May of 1970, which just goes to show you what the hell was happening in 1970. Like, right. there was so much stuff going on in 1970. <laughs> I actually don't know what knocked it out. While I continue to buy the numbers, Adam, why don't you hop on and try to find I'll, out what knocked I'll it out? I'll try to find yeah. out, yeah. So the next number that I'm going to put out there is the number 11 which is the number of months between when they played their first gig and when they functionally broke up. 11 months between playing that first gig and essentially stopping being a working band. Burn hot, burn hot and burn out. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Yeah. A wise man once said Who Who in the world? Kurt Cobain said that. And then the last number is just number two, which is the number of top 30 singles that they had on the charts when they decided to walk away from this and break up. Their songs were climbing the charts and actually got better as they broke up. And essentially, they just kind of walked away and said, we're all going to do our own thing. The naming of this band, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, was very purposeful because they all said, we wanted to preserve our ability to have solo careers we didn't want to be a member of the birds we didn't want to be a member of you know the commission or whatever we wanted to be crosby stills nash and young so that when we did our next project everybody would know who we were it also means that when one guy leaves he can't keep the band going right well, they can. They just change it to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> Crosby and Stills. <laughs> that was part of the original thinking of it, but then they just broke that rule. They're like, well, we'll just have we call ourselves Crosby and Stills. Whatever. Sure. Add Torque in there. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that is our By the Numbers. And speaking of numbers, just a quick plea to our listeners here. We've been watching our numbers go up every month, every week, every day. We've been getting more and more people listening. We love it. If you guys could do us a quick favor, go on, give us a review, drop five stars in there. It would be fantastic. And if you happen to be the kind of person who's in like a Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young or any of those individual people's discussion forum, thread, whatever, why don't you go ahead and pop this episode in there? We'd love to get some feedback from people who are super fans of this music. Yeah. I mean, or maybe you're Nash or Young and you want to like, and you're listening. Us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Neil Young seems like the kind of guy that's just on those Reddit threads all the time, absolutely. just responding to stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if he was to send in like an audio clip smashing us, we'll definitely play it on the air. Oh yeah. If Neil Young sends us an audio clip telling us to cease and desist and uh, you know, <laughs> that would be the highlight of my career. So one thing I I do want to just point out again, we're going to get into the history of this band. And sometimes we go into bands and we have the problem of there's not that much history available. It's pretty obscure being able to find out any information. We had to other problem this week where there's so much information available about these guys. We are putting together a narrative to try to give you the story. We're going to miss some stuff. We're probably going to get some stuff wrong. This is all done in service of trying to give you a better framework for appreciating this album but if we got anything wrong 
Y'all can please go ahead and write us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com and let us know what we got wrong, what we got right, what maybe needs more context. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that we have coming up Request Month November, where you can request which albums we are going to be covering. Write us in to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. Send us a DM on Instagram. Hit our Facebook page. Lots and lots and lots of different forums through which you can reach us and let us know what albums you want us to cover in November. We are very excited to get feedback from the fans and cover the albums that they like and then make fun of those albums and alienate those fans. <laughs> and alienate. <laughs> that is the plan. Well, I just wanted to mention, too, since you mentioned the challenge of telling this entire history, and I'm sure you're going to do a journeyman's job of it shortly, Tom. But keep in mind, dear listeners, that there are there is a David Crosby solo record on the list as well. There are two Stephen Stills records on the list. The other Crosby, Stills, and Nash record is on the list. And of course, there are multiple Neil Young records on the list. So worry not. We'll have plenty more time to tell more tidbits from these gentlemen's lives. <laughs> if you include Buffalo Springfield again and Deja Vu, Neil Young has nine projects on the list. Jeez. Go, Neil. Yeah. Listen, I love Neil Young. That might be too many albums on the list. I don't know. So we are going to dive into the story, and it all starts with Stephen Stills. He was born in 1945 in Texas to a military family, so he ends up moving around all over the place for his dad's work. During his childhood, he lived in Louisiana, during which he got into the Delta Blues. He lived in Costa Rica and the Panama Canal Zone which got him interested in Latin music, and he finally ends up settling in Florida for a good portion of his youth. He is diagnosed at a very early age with partial hearing loss in one ear, a condition which gets worse as he ages and in no way inhibits his career at all. So in the early 1960s, he's in college in Louisiana. He drops out and decides that he wants to become a professional musician. He does some session work. He joins a bunch of groups. He eventually forms a folk act called The Company. And the company gets some cred, and they end up doing a tour of Canada. And this is where the fates align. As the story goes, it's late 1965. He's driving in a car as they're touring across Canada. And he knows Neil Young by reputation, but they aren't friends. They haven't really met before. And he sees Neil driving down the road in the converted hearse that he was known to drive around in. <laughs> and he ends up speeding up to catch up with them, flags him down, and they basically pull over to the side of the road, have a conversation. Steven introduces himself. He says, hey, Neil, you're doing exactly what I want to do. Drive a hearse. Neil was wearing somebody else's skin at that point, so... Neil's like, hold on, let me put my bloodied axe down in the backseat here for a second as we have our conversation. <laughs> exactly. So he basically says, listen, man, you're doing exactly what I want to do. You're a folk guy playing electric with a band behind you. That's super cool. When I get back to L.A., we're going to get in touch. We're going to make some music together. So at this point, Stephen Stills now knows one Neil Percival Young. And I swear my goal was to make up a weird middle name for Neil Young. <laughs> and then he already has a weird middle name. You didn't have to I wait. I didn't even His have to make one middle up. Name middle name is Percival? middle name is Percival. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So Neil Young is also born in 1945 in Toronto, Canada. Shortly after he's born, he moves to this town called Omimi, Ontario, which even today has less than 1,500 people in it. It is the middle of nowhere. And 
Basically, he has a pretty normal childhood for somebody born in 1945, by which I mean he gets polio when he's six years old and is partially <laughs> paralyzed on the left side. Oh, my God. Apparently, doesn't inhibit his music career at all. He does love music, worships Elvis, listens to a bunch of rockabilly, country, rock and roll artists, and teaches himself, as one does when they are super into rock and roll, how to play the ukulele, and then eventually switches over <laughs> to the banjo. That's Canada's national instrument, right? <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. He's getting when I think of ukuleles, I think of frozen Lake Athabasca <laughs> and ice fishing in November. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just asbestos mines and uh, yeah. all that. <laughs> all the best that Canada has to offer. So... Neil's not a guitar player as a kid. Eventually, he moves to a small town in Winnipeg and right after drops out of high school to become a professional musician. And pro tip, kids, don't drop out of high school to become a professional musician. <laughs> high school's not that hard, and you're probably not going to become Neil Young. So it's not a really good career move overall. However, Neil makes it work partly by being a very prolific songwriter. He's a workhorse. He really does. He, he's in a lot of bands, writes a lot of songs. At one point, the Guess Who covered one of his songs called Flying on the Ground is Wrong, which I think means like being high is wrong. I don't know what it means. I don't know that. I consider myself a somewhat of a Guess Who fan. I'm a little little, little upset with that. I got to go digging. What of a Guess Who fan. Yeah. I'm here. yeah. All right, Seriously. go to hell. Yeah. Understatement. <laughs> So, Neil's in a bunch of different projects. Eventually, he joins a band fronted by one Rick James. Yes, the Rick James, called the Mina Birds. And that band soon breaks up when Rick James is arrested for, of all things, being AWOL from the Navy Reserve and has to go to jail. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Unexpected. Hey, yeah, that, that sentence took some turns. It really Plot did, twist, right? Yeah. I was reading it. I was like, there's no fucking... No way. No, <laughs> come on. <laughs> anyway, that band breaks up. And so what does Neil decide to do? He pawns all of the band's equipment and buys a converted hearse. Then he starts driving around <laughs> it, which is how Steven Steele what? recognizes him. And that is the car that he uses in 1966 to illegally, mind you, move to Los Angeles. You said illegally because he's Canadian, so I guess he doesn't have papers? He, like, got a backdated green card in 1970, but he wasn't supposed oh. to be in the country and he wasn't supposed to be working at the time that he's a huge star. Massive right, star. Right, right, Guys, it is pretty clear to me I've done everything wrong. <laughs> All of the choices I'm making are wrong. Can I make one exception, Phil? Yeah. Seeing first tube last week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. The one thing you got right in this life. Yeah. You should have dropped out of sick. high school and bought yourself like an ice cream truck or something like that. And started rolling around <laughs> playing songs yeah. and selling as drugs. As I, I still made it to, to Spock 23, <laughs> you know? It's all worth it. All right. So, Neil is in L.A., He's driving around in his weird-ass hearse. And completely by chance, again, Stephen Steele sees Neil Young stuck in traffic. And is like, Neil! Hey, oh remember God. how we were supposed to hang out and make some music? We should totally do that. Which leads to the formation of Buffalo Springfield. Pro tip, kids, also, get a distinctive car. People will recognize you all over the place. <laughs> They're like, is that that other converted hearse? No, that must be Neil Young's converted hearse. You know, he, he had a red converted hearse, and that's more of a burgundy. <laughs> so Buffalo Springfield. Like, if you guys don't know Buffalo Springfield, listeners out there, 
you actually do know Buffalo Springfield. They were the forerunner of this countrified rock sound that became a really big hallmark of many late 60s bands. You think about the Grateful Dead putting out Working Man's Dead, putting out American Beauty, that kind of countrified sound, Flying Burrito Brothers, bands like that. Buffalo Springfield is putting out albums in 1966. Working Man's Dead comes out in 1970. So Buffalo Springfield is a forerunner of that sound. And like a lot of bands that we've covered, they got their break when they were chosen to be the house band at the Whiskey A Go-Go in 1966. Oh, nice. Hey, All right. They do three albums and several singles, and I found it to be very interesting. Their signature song, For What It's Worth, not on any of their albums. It was released just as a single. That was the old way, though, of the 60s, right? And then later in the CD era and beyond, they repackaged them. So by the time that we got to most of these records... They were same with the Beatles, right? That was they actively didn't put the singles on the album. It was it's bizarre to think about now, but that seems like it was the norm at the time, yeah. Well, they had already put out an album and then they released it as a single. I think that part of what was happening with this protest movement was that, as you were talking about before with Ohio, they were really trying to get it out there quickly to be topical, and so. For what it's worth, was written about a like protest slash riot that happened in L.A. and Stephen Stills wanted to get it out there pretty quickly. I think it happened in like Thanksgiving, and the single was released in December. I get that part of it. That part of it's cool. I guess what I'm saying is, to our modern brains, even our capitalistic brains, it doesn't really make sense to me that you could release a successful single on a 45 record, then follow it up with an album, and not include that track on there as a selling point. I don't think anyone would do that now, but it seems like they did that commonly back in the day. I don't know. Maybe the thinking was you already bought the single, so you probably wouldn't buy the album for the single, so we'll try to put more material on. I don't know. seems weird to me as well. But Buffalo Springfield, they have several top 25 songs. They were going concerned. They're playing all over the U.S. They have a somewhat fluid membership, because of legal problems and Neil Young being generally unreliable for anything but solo projects, they are eventually offered a spot at the Monterey Pop Festival. Surprise, surprise, Neil Young unavailable for the show. So they decide we need to get somebody else to fill in for us. And who do they pick? David Van Cortland Crosby. Again, I did not make that <laughs> name up. That's his real name. <laughs> so... David Crosby, born in L.A. in 1941. He's a little bit older than Stills and Young, who are like, remember, like they're in like their early 20s at this point. They're really young. And David, I had no idea, the scion of the Van Cortland family, who were like a prominent Dutch political family who moved to the New World and became a prominent New York political family. His father was a stockbroker who later became an Academy Award-winning cinematographer. So, really, not a hard scrabble upbringing for sure. one David Crosby. He had a leg up, let's say. Would you say he had a liver up? Oh, he, I think he had two <laughs> livers up at one point. <laughs> I mean, that fits his party guy mystique, right? Yeah, although I will say, when you learn a little bit more about David Crosby's partying, it does not sound fun at all. It sounds shockingly <laughs> depressing and dangerous. We can get to that a little bit later. But Crosby, very famous as a founding member of The Birds, who have five, count them, five albums on the list of 1,001 albums you must hear wow. before you die. They I'm make, shocked. 
Is that all yeah. of them? <laughs> it's not all of them, but it's a lot of them. Well, they also had a rotating cast of members. Graham Parsons was in that band for a minute. Sure, okay, yeah, that's right, that's people right. People rotated in and out, so there probably were eras. Yeah, so the Birds make records from 1964 to 1973. David Crosby's in the band from 64 to 67. And during that period, three of those records make the list, by the way. I cannot stress how influential the Birds were. They were the forerunners of the psych rock sound. When you hear the Birds, you think immediately mid-60s. It is a sound. It is a vibe. They were, I'm not going to say like the American Beatles, but they had a, a claim to being one of the biggest American bands that were out there. And Dave is the rhythm guitar player for our story. And importantly, he is the backup harmony singer of the birds. He really cuts his teeth doing backup harmonies, and the birds are slathered with harmonies everywhere. It's a big part of their sound. They have numerous number one singles, sell shitloads of albums, are a total phenomenon. David is like completely a guy, and he starts taking over more songwriting duties after their main songwriter, Gene Clark, steps away because of the stress of being in the band. And I'm going to guess that the stress of being in the band is just code for a serious drug problem. I don't know for sure, <laughs> but I'm going to assume that that's what that is. I think that's probably pretty accurate. So they are touring all over, and eventually they get a spot at the Monterey Pop Festival, where Crosby does two things that lead to him leaving the birds. One is that he plays with Buffalo Springfield to fill in for the AWOL Neil Young. The second is that he goes on many long rants in between songs about conspiracy theories regarding the JFK assassination, which really <laughs> rubbed the other members of the band the wrong way. I can't imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> That's great fodder for, uh, for the audience. So I don't know why that would be a big deal for the Birds to have David Crosby play with another band there, but it is a big deal. Causes a lot of tension. Everything comes to a head. When David refuses to record a song written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin called Going Back. And he's like, I don't want to, I want to write our own songs. I don't want to record a cover song. I don't want to record somebody else's material. And he is either thrown out or they ask him to leave. It depends on who you ask. David says he decided to leave. The birds say they threw him out. But either way, you know, Crosby has been pretty upfront about the fact that he's a raging asshole and very hard to be in a band with. And I do kind of respect that. <laughs> <laughs> does not hide it at all. Sounds like they're kind of all like that, based on your description thus far. <laughs> we are, yeah. Oh, we have, yeah, we're getting to it. <laughs> so, all right, it's 1967. Crosby is out in the wind, but he's a very respected musician. He's a guy in the scene. He's hanging out at Mama Cass Elliott's house, who, by the way, just as a side note, I feel like she is the unspoken matchmaker of so many of these like 1960s pairings. I just wanted to point out that if you're not going to get the super distinctive car to roll around the scene with, then pull a Crosby, which is get super distinctive facial hair. <laughs> You'd spot that guy a mile away. Well, he also had that weird like balaclava hat that he wore all the time in yeah. the birds he looked like he's straight out of like tombstone or something <laughs> yeah, like totally. you could put yeah. you could put some chaps on that dude he's, he's yeah. got a style definitely and i think that's a part of these people's mythos so crosby's like i don't even know what i'm gonna do next i got all this birds money i'm blowing through it on drugs very quickly though so i have to figure something out He's hanging out at Mama Cass's house, and he ends up jamming with Stephen Stills. And at one point, they go to see a band called the Hollies. And in that band is one, Graham Nash. And Mama Cass says, hey, do you need a guy who sings harmony? This guy's pretty good at harmony. 
So they end up getting together and jamming at Mama Cass's house. And that is how Crosby, Stills, and Nash all eventually meet up. So now we're on to Graham Nash. Born in 1942 in Blackpool, England. So we have a Brit, two Yanks, and a Canuck at this point. (laughs) Graham Nash is a founding member of the Hollies, who, by the way, have so many hits, it's ridiculous. The Hollies were basically one of those bands that went through so many different iterations and so many different sounds. I call them the British doobies. <laughs> well, in all honesty, like that song, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress, I think most people think that's a CCR song. Yeah, I did. I, I'll cop to that. I thought that for many years. That's a great song. They got that song, The Air That I Breathe, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. Oh, wow. Song, Just One Look. They got that song, Carousel. Totally. Another song called Bus Stop. Yeah. It's from like early Hollies. Totally. Yeah, it's cool. Okay, Long Cool Woman is post-Graham Nash. Post-Graham Nash, absolutely. Absolutely. Saying, right? absolutely. In, so is Air That I Breathe, yeah. In the Graham Nash days, they were poppy, Beatle-esque, early Beatles style. Yeah, so Graham Nash is one of the founding members of the Hollies, and they are doing that tried-and-true method of covering American blues songs. But basically, Nash is like, we got to write our own stuff. We got to get a little bit more out of this, you know, rut that we're in. He's described as the leader of the band, even though he doesn't sing lead vocals. He'll get like a featured vocal on a bridge type of thing going on. But they're a pretty straightforward band, and Nash is trying to push them in a more forward-looking direction. That kind of leads to the deterioration of his relationship with the rest of the members of the band. He pushes this album called Butterfly where he takes a lot of the creative control and it does not sell well at all. It's more experimental. It's more singer-songwriter style. And the rest of the band is like, that sucked. You know what we should do? We should do a whole album of Bob Dylan covers. And Graham Nash is like, no, I'm not doing fucking Bob Dylan covers, all right? I have just been jamming with Crosby and Stills in LA and it really got my juices flowing. I really think I got some great songs here. How about this new song, Marrakesh Express? I just wrote this one. It's a great song. Maybe we should do that. And they're like, nah, not really into it. Stick with Dylan. It's like, (laughs) I got this other song called Teach Your Children. What do you think of that? They're like, nah, nah, we're not going to do that. Hard pass. I read some of Graham Nash's memoir, Wild Tales, this week. I didn't read the whole thing, but I read significant portions. Let me add a little to this, which is, yeah, the Hollies are like five or six or even seven records in. They had a lot of success in the UK and even had toured the US. And so they were like a corporation at this point. I think the other guys, including a guy that he had been going to school with and had known since he was six years old, they were the two core members of the Hollies. And so breaking that band up was was challenging and emotional, to say the least. But they were just in the mode of churning out more pop music. And that's what the record company wanted them to do. And that's what the guys who were getting a paycheck wanted them to do. And so, yeah, I read Nash said that he kind of befriends Crosby first, he actually hears an early demo of the song Deja Vu. And it immediately occurs to him, shit, everything I'm doing in this band back in the UK is so passe. Like, pop is not doing it for me anymore at all. And the one story I heard about the first time they actually got together and sang, just to elaborate on that, because I thought you guys would like it, they're at Joni Mitchell's house, and Graham Nash has recently started dating Joni Mitchell. And they come over, and Crosby and Stills are working on a tune. I believe it was You Don't Have to Cry. They play it for him once, singing two-part harmony. Nash goes, play it one more time. They play it again. He goes, okay, third time. And then he just joins in with an excellent (laughs) third-part harmony. And they're like, wow, that was magical. 
That's awesome. And then they split up, and they don't, you know, then eventually they come back together. But they had this like one magical night where this spiritual event happened, and he can't shake it even when he goes back to his old band. I'm sure that uh, Graham Nash probably left out of that story that he eventually steals Joni Mitchell from David Crosby as his girlfriend, <laughs> as the girlfriend. No, 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 he talked about that. He had already done that at that point. Yeah. He claims they were cool about it, and Crosby was super anti-monogamy, and like it was the smoothest transition possible, but that actually didn't create, at least he says, didn't create mm. a rumpus in their relationship sure. at that time. Sounds... Like what the guy who stole the girl would say, not what the guy who got the girl stolen would say. You know what? I was going to save this little tidbit for later, but I think this is a good little nugget. So this week, I imagine we'll talk about teacher children. This week, I, I had some curiosities about like, what was the overlap between the dead, right? Because uh, I know Jerry plays uh, pedal steel there. And I found this Variety article about the last time Stephen Stills excuse me, Graham Nash saw Jerry Garcia. He said, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young were doing Deja Vu at Wally Hyder's studio in San Francisco. The four of us went to a very funky motel called the Caravan Lodge, which was only a two-minute walk to the studio. Neil Young had two bush babies staying in his room with him, Harriet and Speedy. It was a crazy time. What's up? What's a bush baby? Exactly. Uh, hold on. I read that too, and I was confused. He did is elaborate. It an animal? It is some kind of ferret or something. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like he had like two Papua New Guineans who had like been like, you know, oh my God. like a scene out of Zoolander where he's like, this is my Sherpa. Like, right. Yes. Right. <laughs> oh, man. So, Rob, the one thing that I actually it cracked me up interviews with both Graham Nash and David Crosby. They talk about the first time that they got together. Apparently, Mama Cass said. Oh, just get him stoned and everything will be cool. And both Graham Nash and David Crosby went on at length about how good the weed was. <laughs> like 35 years later, <laughs> David Crosby's like, uh, we call it a pullover weed because if you smoked it and you started driving, you got to pull over to remember where you're going. And Graham Nash is like, oh my God, this weed was amazing. And you're like, dude, Nash mentioned years ago. multiple times in his memoir that Crosby was known to have the best weed of anybody. And I think that was part of what affected Nash too, is that when he came to visit America the first time with the Jealousy? Hollies. No drugs. That these guys are <laughs> some of the first people that turned him on to taking drugs and smoking pot and taking LSD and he came back to his bandmates in the Hollies and they had no interest in any of that stuff. So they were, there was just this changing of the era aspect that was going on that was influencing his mind. Yeah, so basically Graham Nash goes back to the UK and he leaves the Hollies. Like you said, it's it's a big deal. He was a founding member of that band. And it was a legitimate band. It was not, oh, maybe we'll make it someday. Many hits, many albums. But he says, it's time for me to move on. I've got this connection with Crosby and Stills. And I think that we can make something happen. It doesn't happen right away. But eventually, they say, hey, we're all kind of out in the wind. Let's join up. They... Join up, and they recorded their first album. It's released in 1969. It's just called Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Again, very purposefully done. We all want to preserve our solo careers. The first single, Marrakesh Express. Holly said, no, I don't want that song. Goes to 28 on the charts. Actually, I read that the Hollies recorded a crappy version of Marrakesh, but it was almost like they weren't into it, and that was the breaking point uh. for Nash to leave. 
And since I have all this Nash knowledge, I think we've all done a fuck you version of somebody else's song. You're like, you want to play this? Sure. Yeah, there we go. How's this? Yeah, okay. I just have one more Nash anecdote from his time in the Hollies and in the UK that I thought you guys would enjoy, which is he manages, because he's on the scene, they have something like 17 top 20 hits in the course of five years in the Hollies. They're a big deal in, in the UK. And so he befriends Brian Epstein, manager of the Beatles, and manages to get himself an advanced copy of Sgt. Pepper's before it comes out. And it just so happens that that same week, the guys from the Turtles come and visit him in the UK. And so he plays a little trick on them where he gets them super high. And he says, we're going to listen to a record. I shan't tell you what it is. And then he puts on the unreleased Beatles record. And their mind is, they're like shitting their pants. (laughs) <laughs> I just ask you awesome. to picture that scenario. Can I pay for a drug that allows me to experience that? <laughs> <laughs> is that this is before or after Graham Nash sang on Lily the Pink, which I believe was mentioned on our first ever episode? No kidding. <laughs> yeah. He's on that? He's on Lily the Pink. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we have a lot of background to get through, people, so I'm sorry we're running a little long here. I appreciate you bearing with us. I hope the story is compelling enough. I think this is a really fascinating story. All right, so we got Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They say they're going to record their first album. They have a hit with Marrakesh Express. Goes to number 28 on the charts. Their follow-up, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, goes to number 21. And I got to say, I really, really love, I believe it was the B-side of Marrakesh Express, which was Helplessly Hoping. I think that's my favorite. Oh, Crosby, great song. Yeah, man. I love that song. How much of a like embarrassment of riches do you have to have that that's your B-side? Come on, guys. <laughs> Good on them. It's not going to make the record, dude. <laughs> well, again, these guys had been writing songs in and been in bands that didn't want to do those songs. I heard that was the situation with Crosby, too, where he was suggesting songs for the birds, and they're like, nah, pass. Guinevere, pass. (laughs) Yeah, so they're coming with a stacked book of songs that they already have ready to go. They record the album, but when they record the album, with the exception of the drums, basically, Stephen Stills does everything else. He's like piano, organ, guitar, bass, and we have two other guitar players. So basically, Crosby and Stills and Nash all play guitar. And so they have to put together a band because they're like, well... We need to go and perform these songs live. We have three guitar players. We need to put together a band. So what's the first thing they do? They hire another guitar player in Neil Young. (laughs) They need four (laughs) guitar players. (laughs) Neil Young ostensibly is like, I can play keys. Like, I can kind of play the keyboard, too. And they're like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. I thought, no, it's a a funny point. I think Stills was going to play bass or keys or something. I think Nash and Stills both played a little keys. But you're right, every guitar player thinks they can play keyboard, and then Stills definitely plays that bass. Oh, no, he does, but not on not on tour. Like, he's not going to play the bass on tour. So they needed to get to, like, a full band to do that. So anyway, they ended up getting Neil Young. They have Dallas Taylor on drums. They need to basically find another bass player. They get a guy who ends up having, uh, what they said, his head was in another place, which was code for he had a heroin problem. And so he left the band very shortly thereafter. And then they get this guy, George Reeves, on the bass. And he's like 
19 or 20 at this point. And the reason why I say 19... Oh, I'm sorry. It's not George Reeves. It's Greg Reeves. It's Greg Reeves on the base. I'm sorry. I have so many names and so many notes here. It's Greg yeah, Reeves on the base. there's a lot going on. He's 19 or 20. And the reason I say 19 or 20 is because apparently his birth year is unknown. <laughs> he's either 19 or he's 20 at phantom. the time. <laughs> where is one born that their birth year is unknown? Like, where it's like Loretta that... Lynn. Like, if you're born in Appalachia, yeah, if you're born in the 30s holler, or 40s, you yeah. might not know. <laughs> Butcher Holler. He was poor black Southern in the like 50s. I could see them being like, I don't know, man. It was like, so, it was like fall, right. maybe winter. Yeah, right. Sure. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, right. now they have their band. And they decide that they need to hit the road. They need to support this album. But when Neil Young comes on, Neil Young basically says, I'm not coming on as a piano player slash guitar player. I'm coming on as a full partner in this band. We are now going to become not Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which is what you put that album out. We are Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I'm a full member of the band. And they say, of course you're a full member of the band. You're the man. And also, don't murder me. <laughs> seven foot three staring down at you as he's uh demanding this on the plus side he's got that hearse to help exactly. slog, slog right. gear to the game yeah. does happen exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah they do have a funky name problem i also noticed on the cover of deja vu they put those other two guys' names full names right on the cover isn't that true i can go grab my vinyl of deja vu and check really quickly if you want It'll take like two seconds if you want me to do it. Yes, I'm curious. Sure. By the way, Neil Young is only six foot. I don't know why I thought he was like a seven foot monster. Maybe the the few times I've seen him, the other musicians were just really short. He's always kind of stooped over too, you know? Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, I was like, in my head, if he stood up, then he would be, you know, this giant. It, yeah, he just has a, he has a very just squatchy vibe. <laughs> <laughs> He never looks at the audience either. If, have you seen him live? He does this thing where he'll start the not. song facing the audience, and then within about three minutes, he's managed to slowly turn his back to the audience. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's just grinding on these like <laughs> notes while he's facing the drummer. It's quite yeah, quite entertaining. Pop. Yeah, yeah. It's like he's yelling at the drummer too. It's like he's mad at him. <laughs> <laughs> I Adam, on the other hand, do like Neil Young's guitar playing. But I, but it's like I'm mesmerized. It's like I'm like, why am I still listening? Why am I still interested? Like I don't quite understand how he's holding my attention so long. Like how is it like I I can't hold my own attention this long? Like, how is he so managing that, to do that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a very delicate, like yeah, it's a delicate dance. I think know? he just plays with a lot of feel. It's. It's in the same ballpark as why blues players are so interesting when they're able to play with feel. He doesn't have the touch that B.B. King or Albert King have, but there, there's passion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. He lacks the touch. Oh, here, here's the album. Tom has just rejoined us. I realized that I probably could have just searched the image on the internet, but why would I do that when I have the album right here? And when you, you are have right, the actual album. It has Dallas Taylor and Greg Reeves, full names on the cover. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Wow. That is a huh. wordy, yeah. wordy album. Which yeah. I like how this has the sticker on there, which says it was a certified gold record, which nice. means that it's nice. like from probably like the month after it was released because it already went gold right. within two weeks. <laughs> That's awesome. So 
They now have the full band. They are going out and touring, and they are a phenomenon. They play at Woodstock. They have that epic 3 a.m. set at Woodstock. Everybody loves it. Interestingly, they do not appear as the full band in the Woodstock documentary because Neil Young, who in an interview from like 2002, was still pissed about the cameras on stage. And he's like, I thought it was a total distraction. It was an abomination. I told him, you can't film me. So they didn't film Neil Young, but they filmed the rest what? of the band. <laughs> yeah. Neil Young's a crotchety That's guy. That's crazy. It's like a, cutting your ex-girlfriend out of a picture clunkily yeah, or something. Seriously, it? yeah. <laughs> it's a bit much. Just burning her face in the out of the picture <laughs> and putting it right back in the photo album. <laughs> so August of 69, we got Woodstock. All right? They have not been a band for that long at this point. They've been a band for as a quartet for, like, again, two gigs. They are playing around, and everybody's loving them. They're going nuts. There's this great anecdote about how they played the Fillmore East. And the crowd reaction was such that when they left stage, nobody left. And everybody just stayed and started demanding more music. And they had gone back to the dressing room, and Bill Graham, the promoter, was like, hey, guys, you got to come back out. And they were like, no. And they shut the dressing room door in his face and said, we're not going to come back out. And so Bill Graham starts stuffing money under the door. <laughs> He's just shoving money <laughs> under the door until they see the pile is big enough. And they say, okay, I guess we'll go back out now. <laughs> Dude, that is awesome. <laughs> I think sometimes the power, this is one of those context pieces where, but they talked about it or Nash talked about it a lot in his book that when they landed on this way of singing three-part harmony with each other or and even four-part harmony, although oftentimes I think with Neil Young added in, when he is added in, he's just doubling the high part or something. But sometimes it's four-part. But let's just speak about the three-part harmony. It really felt like something brand new. And I think listener ears also felt that. We were very used to, as a listening public, hearing two-part harmony through the tradition of the Everly Brothers and John and Paul and the Beatles and various others Adding that third voice, it now seems, or it could, seem a little obvious, but I just think at the time, it was really fresh. Well, and not only adding in the third voice, but we talked about it a little bit on the Working Man's Dead episode, I'm sorry, on the American Beauty episode, where the Grateful Dead had a way of constructing harmonies where it was three different lines that kind of worked together sometimes, they didn't work together. Crosby, Stills, and Nash work in this lockstep movement that sounds when they hit everything precisely like just one angelic voice. And that, I think, was new, the way that they constructed these harmonies to just be inseparable from each other. You can almost not pick out different parts. You can't even hear them breathing separately. Like, it's fucked up. It's super pro. Well, there's also something to be said for the execution of the harmonies is one thing, but then there's also just this kind of God-given, nature-given tone of their voices Together, that are so yeah. complimentary. Yeah. It's it, it, it's it's it, kind of like what you said, Tom, like, it's like, you know, struck down from heaven that these three guys just happened to, to get together and you've got this, these harmonies coming together. Yeah. The, the four of us could pick a lane and sing one of those guys parts perfectly like literally perfectly and it's just never, not gonna sound that yeah good. yeah yeah you're right it is, it is a timbre thing we've talked before about lead singer voice versus backup singer voice i think 
David Crosby is the only one of Crosby, Stills, and Nash that has a potential to have a good lead singer voice. Not that they don't do a good job on some of the songs where they sing lead, but I think that their voices naturally have that backup singer timbre to them that allow them to meld perfectly with other things. And then Neil Young is just a freak. He's a singularity. So again, we're going really long on this. I apologize to it. We're getting right now to the point where they're touring. They're hugely successful. And everybody's like, when is your album coming out? When are you guys going to put an album out? And so they decide they have to go and record this album between July 1969 and January 1970, they record Deja Vu. And it does not sound like it was a very fun experience. It's recorded between L.A. and San Francisco. But basically the L.A. part is Neil Young kind of recording stuff and then bringing it to the group in San Francisco and saying, put harmony on this, and sometimes coming and playing on the stuff that they're doing in San Francisco. And also another note, which is very sad and I feel like is a canon event in his life is that on September 30th, so they started recording in July of 1969, September 30th of 1969, which is the day that Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the first album, goes gold, David Crosby's 21-year-old girlfriend, Christine Hinton, is killed in a car accident where she had borrowed his van to take her cat to the vet. She's up in Novato, California, just up in the you know, North Bay area. Her cat jumps onto her lap. She gets distracted, drives into oncoming traffic, and hits a bus and is killed oh instantly. Oh, my and God. David Crosby says, I would come into the studio and I would sit on the floor and just cry for hours on end. Holy crap. And that's well, his not, experience while making this album. Yeah, it sounds like he was really wrecked and suicidal for an extended period of time and on drug binges. I just wanted to point out, too, that to hear Nash tell it, not that these are equivalent in any way, but when they were doing that first album, first of all, they were kind of in love with each other musically for having recently met, and they were all in healthy relationships. Stephen Stills was with a woman called Judy Collins, who he wrote Sweet Judy Blue Eyes about, and Nash was with Joni Mitchell. And so by the time this one comes around, Stills is broken up with his girl. Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash are basically disintegrating. And so it was just a much darker time in their lives generally. It's a unglamorous version of making one of the greatest albums of all time. And I did not feel like... Sometimes you hear the story of the making of an album. You're like, man, that sounds great. I would have loved to have been there. And this did not sound like that at all. It sounded like, like everybody had like serious yeah, drug problems, lots of cocaine. Neil Young was drinking tons of tequila. Stephen Stills was drinking tons of whiskey and also doing tons of cocaine. David Crosby was doing tons of cocaine. I got bush babies all up in that place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw in an article that was talking about David Crosby in like his later life. It was called The Death of David Crosby, but it was written in like 1985 or something like that. So they are interviewing David Crosby, and they are describing him as gaunt, saggy-faced, missing several of his teeth, open sores oh, on Jesus. his face, just wrecked on drugs. And they're like, he's 44 years old. And I was like, I thought you were describing oh like a 70-year-old man. Right. Um, and it, he basically said in this interview... Missing people sucks, man. Like, 
I miss so many of my friends. And he goes on and rattles off this list of all of his friends that he had that died young. Janis Joplin, Mama Cass, Jimi Hendrix, people like that. Talks about Christine Hinton. It sounds like he kind of never recovered from that loss. And it led to him becoming a notorious drug fiend to the point where he was getting arrested like weekly at a point he kept getting arrested with drugs and guns he had a 45 caliber pistol and he kept getting arrested with drugs and the gun apparently he was paranoid after john lennon got shot that somebody was going to assassinate him i'm sure oh, wow. that the freebasing copious amounts of cocaine had something to do with the paranoia but <sighs> he ended up spending like five months in a dallas prison for being arrested with uh, with cocaine and a gun and also apparently because he was freebasing and using a propane torch was notorious mm-hmm. for just accidentally burning down hotel rooms like oh he God. just like get the what propane the- torch going st- hit the fucking pipe and put the torch down it would fall over and still <laughs> lit, would right? catch on fire there's a picture of david crosby it's like a mug shot or something like that from b he's arrested on a boat in like the late 70s or early 80s and he looks fucking horrible is that the one where he his plan was to try to run away to international waters on yes. his boat and he was free base and coke the whole time anyway listen we're getting way into the the downfall of david crosby in a way that i don't think is going to service the actual telling of this album so let's talk about deja vu we've been going through the backstory for quite some time now we are actually at deja vu i want to start getting into some of these tracks because they are amazing we're going to revisit again the first track on the album we listened to a bit of it at the beginning this is carry on Love is coming, love is coming to us Let's hear it. What do we got? Whoever is playing that acoustic is hammering the shit out of it. (laughs) I remember hearing this as a kid and thinking like, you can play an acoustic guitar like that? I mean, hitting the strings so hard. Serious question. Is this the ostrich tuning? No. No, it is not. <laughs> I think I seriously think this could be the ostrich tuning. Oh my gosh. You're referring to the Lou Reed song, The Ostrich, that's all the same note. Yeah, all E. Yeah. 
Because it has this drone to it, this sitar drone. There's one note that kind of moves around. I, I there might be some weird tunings be... somewhere mixed in, though, because I did hear Nash mention that he learned that from from Joni Mitchell, that she had some kind of hand thing, and so it's hard for her to bar chords. And so her whole guitar style developed in alternate tunings where she didn't quite have to do that as much or, or never had oh, to do that. Wow. No, by hand thing, you mean it's because she has hollow bones like a bird, right? That's my picture <laughs> of Joni Mitchell. <laughs> Let's, let's, let's just let's just back up here. So Neil Young had polio, partially paralyzed. Steven Stills deaf in one ear. Joni Mitchell has some kind of hand issue. So 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 I suck. That's so we're gonna come over that's and kneecap you tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. Get your career going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what's holding me back. The story I heard is that this is one of those songs we've talked about them before, where they finish the record and they're like, hmm, we don't have an opener though. Like, Sweet Judy Bluzz was like a killer opener. We just don't really have, I just don't really hear a single, guys. And Steven Stills goes home and knocks this out in one night. <laughs> yes. It's not a complex song, but this it's song not, is but amazing. Still, it's it's so good. It moves. When they cut into that part two, the bass, boom, 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 boom. Steven Stills on bass, by the way. This is one of those Sounds songs. Great. No Neil Young. This is just Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Which is why I sort of posit this as like a Crosby, Stills, and Nash album with Neil Young as a guest appearance on a couple of songs. Yeah, that's fair. No, the format of this is really interesting. I wrote that it was like scaling a mountain. They come in on an A section that feels kind of like a verse that ends with the, the song title. And then about halfway through, you get this peak moment of harmony, the carry on, love is coming part. And then it just transitions into a totally different song through the end. And I think that's very much Stephen Stills. It's kind of similar to the Sweet Judy Blue Eyes thing, which is just four songs of his smashed together. And yet it still feels like it flows without a lot of repetition and standard ABAB format. So I love the tune. I think the opening line, one morning I woke up and I knew you were gone. Simple but great opening line for either a song or a record. And I was just going to say that of the songwriters, I do like all these songwriters a lot. Of the original three, though, if I had to pick whose approach to songwriting is best, I think it's Stephen Stills. He seemed like he was the secret weapon of this band because he also he plays bass, organ, and bongos on the song. Like He really does a whole lot. He plays organ on this. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's tasty. And he was the leader. I think he was the unofficial band leader, and he was also the perfectionist, which I heard pissed some people off, not the least of which was Neil Young, but he's the one that really insisted they keep going back and try to get things right. He was definitely the leader and the workhorse. This is a great clip. <laughs> it's literally David Crosby with his hands behind his head laying down on a hammock and Stephen Stills is yelling at him like, you walked out of practice two times this week, you fucking asshole! And David Crosby's <laughs> like, yeah, whatever, man. It's all good. And he's like, oh, fucking good! <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can... I can see why you'd be a little upset about that. <laughs> but I think that we've talked about this before and it's incorrect use. Great use of the fade. When you have a bass line that's just very repetitive, that bum, 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 and it's just kind of repeating for a long period of time. Perfect song to fade. They do the fade very well. And they could have ended on gigantic, big, booming harmony because they always had that trick to pull out of their bag. But they didn't, and they did it right. The fade is great on this one. That's what I like about this record, though, and I think this song typifies it, is it's a nice mix, and it's hard to get this mix right. It's a nice mix of perfection and studio trickery, seemingly, in terms of the perfection of the harmonies, 
with earthy live band energy. This feels like it could be a mm-hmm. live band. I'm buying it. Who is the uh, not being super familiar with being able to you know pick their voices out of a lineup? Who is the super high voice? Because at around Nash. the like one, yeah, it's Graham there Nash. you go. That his descending harmony line around the 157 mark was love is coming. Everybody else is holding, and he's got that super high note that is just perfect. Love is coming. Love is coming to us all. And then Stephen Stills mixes in that organ high note on there as well. Sounds great. Yes. Flawless song, guys. No notes. Nothing could have been improved on this song. This song kills it. Let's move on to the next song on the album. We're going to talk about Teach Your Children. Must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself. Because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well, their father's hell. It slowly go by and feed them on your dreams. The one they fix, the one you know by. Don't you ever ask them why? If they told you you would die, so just look at them and I did not know before this week that that was Jerry Garcia on the pedal steel. I cannot unhear Me it either. now. It's yep. so Jerry Garcia. And it's amazing. It sounds really good. It's take one. Get out. I was going to say, Rob, is that is that what I also gathered from that? He did two takes, but they went with take one. Apparently, he did one take, and then he insisted that he had messed up, and he begged Graham Nash, whose song it is, for another take. He was like, you could do it, but I shan't be using it. You did it perfectly. <laughs> Don't waste your time. Wow, that's wild. I think you can hear, now knowing that anecdote, you can hear some questionable notes in the beginning of the chorus, some questionable bends, and he's kind of pushed down in the mix a little during that period. But I would have to agree that by the end, the beginning of the song, the end of the choruses, iconic licks, they make the song. Absolutely. And so this is recorded at the Wally Hyder Studios, And we talked about this on the American Beauty episode, right? That was when they were recording American Beauty. Next door. At the same time, next door. So I think it's probably one of those serendipitous, hey, why don't you just come on over and slap some pedal steel on this Why don't you swing over? Yeah. In the beautiful (laughs) and glamorous Tenderloin district of San Francisco, which visitors may know to be a healthy and thriving neighborhood. Yeah, even then it was shitty. It's really shitty now. I'm pretty sure it was even then it was shitty. It's one of those zones where they 
they're like, we never, this is never going to be nice. We're just going to push all the stuff we don't want into this area and just give up on it forever. And it'll just be a crime ridden uh, rat hole for the rest of its existence. I actually read once, I haven't fact checked this, that they call it tenderloin because in the old way of thinking that was the corrupt cops would be dining out on tenderloin every night and keeping the neighborhood crappy. So it is a thing that crappy neighborhoods have that name. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. I have to say that this is one of those songs where those harmonies, when they move in lockstep, it's indistinguishable as three voices. It really is. It's another just Crosby, Stills, Nash song, no young. But yeah, pick a lead. You can't. There's no lead. They're all leads. And they're all backups. And they all sound amazing. It was funny on the Wikipedia page when they have they're listing out the songs. It says lead vocals. I'm like, no, it's not. They're all singing the entire song in a three part harmony. Who's lead? You can't tell. And I got to imagine that when the Hollies heard this version of the song, they're like, yeah, we probably should have done that. (laughs) That would have been good. (laughs) Totally fucked up. I think on the deluxe edition, there are some really early versions of this. Maybe even one where Nash is playing it with Joni Mitchell singing along a little bit. It's quite different. I think that Stephen Stills is the one that helped him arrange it into this kind of country bounce. And I think it really, really helped the song win. I have to admit, I think this is the best of the Graham Nash songs that I am deeply aware of on the CSNY records. This is by far my favorite one of his compositions. This song's a killer. This is another one of those ones that sounds like a traditional. It sounds like he didn't write it and he just found it in his grandmother's closet or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. And this is one of those almost magical songs where I've been living with this song since I was a kid and I've been listening to the words. And as a kid, you hear teach your children and eventually, you know, the line goes to teach your parents. And as this song has traveled with me through my life, it has changed and the perspective has changed. And now I understand that line. Just look at them and sigh and know they love you. Like how many times have you experienced that in your life or just give up? All right, well, I know they love me. I just got to roll on. So this song is just amazing and and continues to be amazing and hopefully will be amazing for generations to come. It's that classic intergenerational song, but it doesn't, in my mind, go to cheese like so many of those do. Yeah, right, right. All right, we're going to go on to the next song on the album. So, so far, we have done a Stephen Stills song in Carry On, a Graham Nash song in Teacher Children. Now we're going to do the David Crosby song, Almost Cut My Hair. Here we go. Almost cut my hair It happened just the other day It's getting kind of long I could have said it was in my way
I'll jump in on this one first with a story, and I'm so happy Phil is on because, listeners, I want you to picture it's 1996. We're all 16 years old. And, of course, we're listening to this album like teenagers in 1996 do. Phil had the idea, and you desperately wanted to do it. You wanted to play this song with our band and have me shave your head on yes. stage while we were playing this. Yes, that, that makes that makes perfect sense because I feel like that manifested into a later dream where uh, I would perform once in a lifetime and ask, how do I work this? And then shave my head <laughs> while I finish the song. <laughs> Bear in mind, Phil had the classic 1990s butt cut going on with the, oh, the, the, flop, the Jordan Catalano. The hair flop and the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. We didn't actually pull it off, uh, but that, I was just no, super no, excited we, Phil was going to be on okay, this First yeah. of all, can we talk about how goddamn badass this song is? This song is so good. <laughs> so I sick. love this song yes. so much. It is the rock interlude that this album absolutely needed. It kicks in. You're like, what the hell? I was expecting more folky. We said teach your children. This is song number three on the album. So in one, two, three, carry on. Teach your children. Almost cut my hair. You would think you would get the bends. If you were describing it to me without having me listen to it, I'd be like, wow, that's too much variety too quickly. Oh, you're going to flip now to a song that barely has any harmony and instead has searing Neil Young-esque guitar, presumably Neil Young's guitar, and a live vocal take by a throaty drug addict. (laughs) But I think that's the secret weapon of this record and why it is indeed so, so classic. They seem to be able to switch between folk band and rock band quite seamlessly and this for me on upon re-listening this week this track really humanizes them in a really helpful way oh yeah there's something about those otherworldly harmonies we've been talking about we've been referencing god and the heavens this brings it back down to earth in a really positive way let's talk about the amazing second verse it must be because i had the flu for christmas what a great line it's such a good line (laughs) i'm not feeling up the par it increases my paranoia like looking in my mirror and seeing a police car the lick that i it is neil young plays after the it increases my paranoia it increases my paranoia Oh, that might be the highlight of the album for me. I love that lick so much. (laughs) That's so good. That's the thing. Neil gets off some good licks, man. He does, man. So David's got lead singer voice. He's the only one that can like really nakedly carry a song with power behind it. Yeah, especially on this song. He's got almost like a Roger Daltrey vibe. Like there's like like a sexy masculinity. Like, yeah. And I want to point out, again, we've been saying how great this album is it would not be a fair take if we didn't point out some of the flaws the third verse of this song does kind of fall apart a little bit it's like right at 320 in the third verse they get surprised by the change or they hit a wrong chord there's some weird thing happening there that i don't think they meant to have happen we're gonna drop that in right now i'm going to get down in that sunny southern weather It definitely sounds like they're not prepared for that change. And the organ, I think, maybe hits the wrong chord and then kind of right back into the chord. And then at the very end of the song, David Crosby's doing that kind of like, and I feel like I owe it. And his voice just falls apart. It completely falls apart. Oh, yeah. And they keep it. And again, it humanizes (laughs) them. But 
Steven still said they worked 800 hours on this album. How many different takes did they have? Or is this take one? I have a story about that because apparently that was a huge bone of contention that helped drive a wedge between the band at the time. Where Neil Young basically insisted that they keep this vocal take. And Stephen Stills and him like almost came to blows over it. But he somehow won. I guess Crosby backed him maybe just to cheese off Stills or something. Or, or maybe he's fucking Neil Young and he looks like he could like beat you with a spiked club or something like that. You're like... Because the whole vibe I got, I got it from Nash, too, was this, you know, sniping at Stephen Stills for being a quote-unquote perfectionist for wanting them to do three takes of a tune. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It doesn't take me out of the song. And again, like you said, it, it humanizes them a bit. But I cannot help but notice that this vocal treatment and even the band's take at the end of the song really doesn't feel too gelled together considering how this comes right out of the gate like a goddamn bull charging it sounds so good it sounds so good so powerful up front yeah yeah this might be where you start to see that they just didn't really want to be there anymore they were kind of over it even while they were recording it and I think there might be like a 15-minute version of this. Basically, this one reminds me the most of a track that would be on a Neil Young song, like a cowgirl in the sand type jam, right? I think this song also has like a little bit of the the barter that went on between like the dead and Crosby, Stills, and Nash with regard to like, I think this came up on like the American Beauty call, you know, the American Beauty podcast, this idea that this there have been some like barter here, essentially, with like teacher children. I think this, like, this to me sounds like a Pigpen song almost, right? It sounds like it could be on Working Man's. Like, maybe Pigpen was in the room being like, hey, man, maybe you should do this. This sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I bet Pigpen and Crosby could totally hang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they could totally <laughs> like, be buds. Crosby's like, listen, I'm going to do a lot of cocaine, but I will also drink a bottle of tequila with you, if that's what you want to do. <laughs> I'm down for that, too. Yeah, I heard you're a stone jack baller. I'm down with that. Let's move on to the next song on our list. And I apologize, dear listeners, if you are listening on Spotify, you will not be able to access this. But you know what? YouTube is a thing. We're going to go on to the song Helpless, which before we play it, I want to point out is song number four on the album. So we've done one, two, three, four songs so far. All killers. This is the fourth song on the album, the Neil Young penned Helpless. Across the sky 
listen, if you don't feel something, anything in your bones when this song comes on, you might be dead and belong in Neil Young's hearse right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, man, that so reminds me of when I grew up in rural Winnipeg, man. I just like, (laughs) it makes me feel it. I didn't have that experience at all. It makes me feel it. There's so much to love about this extremely simple song. Phil alluded to it earlier, but it's three chords. It's so simple, but everything about it is, it hits, it hits so hard, man. The story I heard about them recording this is that the only way they could slow down enough to get it was it had to be recorded at 2 a.m. after the cocaine had worn off. (laughs) And they had a timeline even then because they had to nail the song before their dealer came through and got them more cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) It's the most lucrative job of the late 60s, early 1970s rock band cocaine dealer. That might, like, <laughs> there's dynasties that were built off of that. Kids go to $40,000-year private school being like, how did you get your money? And my grandfather sold coke to the dead, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like owning an emerald mine in Botswana. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Actually, so I have... I, who, who plays keys on this? Who plays keys on this, Rob? It sounds like you know. I don't know. I'm going to guess stills. But what I was going to ask was, what is that at the top? Is that a backwards guitar effect? What is that? I thought he was riding the volume knob. Riding the volume knob. I think he's hitting and right off the volume knob. And And I think that's Stephen Stills doing it. Yeah. Because Stephen Stills also plays the piano on this one. He's, He's playing the keys. Ah, very tasty keys, too. This song has... It, very few songs do you use like the the top eight notes of a of a piano ever, and this one uses I think the third from the top. I don't know, is it like an like a, uh, an A like or the lowest of the low? Yeah, right. And this one is like it, there's just this little. He ends a run on the high the high this high, super high note, and it's almost just percussive. You can barely hear the note. Oh, the high note. High yeah, note. There's yeah, that yeah. low the low G that they hit a bunch. It's so low. So this is the song that the headphone listen really changed it for me. I've loved this song for a long time. This song is fantastic. Over the second verse, it's at 216, those oohs and ahs that come in. Blue, blue windows behind the stars Yellow moon on the rise I had literally never realized that they were there before and they are so perfect and so tasteful and unobtrusive and they sound like an instrument but it's just crosby stills and nash doing their thing laying perfection down in the background and then they throw a low note in there later it gets a little bit more complex it goes on it's so tasty it's so good it's kind of unthinkable that we are four songs in on our fourth songwriter of the band, and these are all confident, iconic recordings. That is wild. This could be a greatest hits album. It really could at be. this point. You know what I mean? It's greatest hits of the fucking seventies. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Not just this band. Yeah. I mean, I know we have a different playlist like this, but it keeps going for a couple more tracks. It really like does. This. If yeah, you were to turn I, the I LP yeah, over, dude. I cut out "Deja Vu," which is an amazing song. Right. I was like, "Yeah, we." I mean, like, let's try to find a song that is not just the absolute stone cold stunner. And the one that I was able to find, which I still love, is four and twenty. Four. 
four and twenty years ago I come into this life The son of a woman and a man who lived in strife He was tired of being poor And he wasn't into selling door to door And he worked like the devil to be Yeah, yeah. That probably would also be my low point. That's a high low point, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> this is the first one. I have to say, going into it, I wasn't as sure. But now I feel this is true. This is close to perfect. The record, in my opinion. Just the whole product that has been created here. And I feel like every week, no matter what shit record we listen to, we get somebody writing in saying, this is my all-time favorite record. How dare you? I would totally understand it if you said this was your favorite record of all time. It would it would make sense to me. I'm not going to say that myself, but ask me in six months and maybe I will. Because I hadn't listened to this in a while. Again, I have the vinyl and I listen to it sometimes. But upon a deep dive of it, man, did I really come to appreciate this album. It's really pretty killer from front to back. And this song, no harmony at all. Just yeah. Stephen Stills out there who doesn't have lead singer voice, but this sounds, the pathos on this is so good. Oh, yeah, man. It sounds like he's talking about his father, but he's also talking about being a musician. What he says, something about like he doesn't want to be a door-to-door salesman, and that kind of is a musician on tour. You're going and selling music door-to-door, and it sounded like that was maybe getting a little bit tiresome for him. And the other thing I just want to point out is that Two weeks ago, if you walked up behind me and put a gun to my head and said, does 4 and 20 have harmony on it? I'd be like, fuck yeah, tons of it. Of course. Of course. There's a ton of it. No. Stark. No harmony at all. Naked. Guitar and voice. And it kills it. Yeah. And I read that Stephen Stills wasn't sure about that decision. And the other guys convinced him to leave it as is and not add to it. And like, I know that the guitar was probably tracked separate from the vocal but rob you mentioned it like you know tricking the the end listener into that this is happening live in the studio when i listen to this i picture him on that stool a guitar mic and just him singing simultaneously that's like that's the feel i get from from the way his cadence and the way the guitar is played and i'm sure it wasn't but so do you know why i put this song on the focus list and i had to say that it was my low point at one minute and 41 seconds, there is an imperfect edit, and it is obvious. All right, let's, let me crank that up loud. I see that it is empty, and this devil's in my head. I embrace. He's about to say a different word, and they cut it, and then he says another word. You can tell. Ah, uh, that? Yep. Yeah, he's, all right. He's, and, I, and it kind of cuts it off, but he already started the next word, and they cut it, and he puts a different word in there. It's an imperfect edit, and you can tell. And the reason that I know that that's a thing is because I've been editing this fucking podcast now, <laughs> and I haven't been doing it in the past. What? Hold on. What? Uh, oh. Hold on. Oh. No. I did read about this. I didn't take a note on this, unfortunately, because I now I'm, I'm pulling it back from the recesses of my mind, but I read about it this week in Nash's... Someplace I read about it. 
That is his vocal take. I feel almost 100% sure. Really? Because I heard an interview, I think it was with Graham Nash, where he was talking about the 50th anniversary and restoring another vocal take of this song. And he went out of his way to mention, yet it doesn't have, like we knew we had this other vocal take that was cleaner. And he mentioned that line, the embrace line. And I didn't even know what he was talking about at the time because I don't think he referenced the song title. But he was like, yeah, we had that other vocal take, but this one had more pathos, even though it has that perceived mistake in it. I'm pretty, pretty sure. I agree it sounds like a mistake, though. But I, I feel pretty confident it's not a mistake. Okay. Well, listen, even if it's not an editing mistake, he was about to say something different and cut himself off. It's noticeably strange, for sure. But I think it's in the real take. Okay, great. If it's in the real take, good for him for almost saying the wrong word and catching himself. But that was the thing that like, <laughs> I was like, ah, all right. I thought it was an editing mistake. Rob, you always are like, I read 17 books about Crosby, Stills, and Nash this week, so good on you for having done the research. But that was the thing that that did bump me on repeat listens, where I was like, ah, that's just, everything is so good. And if it's imperfect, it seems to serve a purpose in its imperfection, and that didn't seem to serve a purpose in its imperfection. So The premise there, to be clear, though, and this is very different as to how records are made now, certainly how we make records, is that they were unwilling to splice together two vocal takes. That's the implication of the anecdote I just told about yes. this quote-unquote mistake. Yes, and Whereas, literally splicing with a razor blade and tape. Yeah, and tape. Yeah. Yeah. So it would have been physically much more challenging or technologically more challenging, but it could have been done. Or they could have done it with extra an extra track if they'd saved an extra track for bouncing purposes. You know, there was a way to do it, sure. presumably. But they chose not to for some ethical reason, let's say. I, I just want to make it clear to the listeners that no one would even think twice about that in the digital age. Absolutely not. Right. I mean, we had an experience in the studio uh, like a month ago where we were recording a background harmony that we had to do like 28 times in a song. And we're like laboring over doing it third, fourth, and fifth times. The guy was like, everything's still a click track. I can just take your first version of it and just copy and paste it into everything else. We're like, yeah, <laughs> fucking do that, please. Yeah, let's absolutely do that. Do that. Yeah, it's sure, way easier. <laughs> yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Is Coke dealer here yet? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Before we move on, we didn't talk about another possible low point, and this is a lyrical low point on the record. The... I'm going to call it the fourth verse of our house is 54 consecutive laws. <laughs> what the fuck's up with that? Didn't even make the, uh, the numbers, man. That times have got a record. <laughs> okay. Listen, that's a good song that is cheesy as all hell. And I will not, I will not die in the hill if it's not cheesy. It's cheesy as shit. But that's a good song, man. He's singing about living with Joni Mitchell. They got a couple of cats. They're probably having <laughs> weird gentle sex with some breaker bird bones. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Probably. Anyway, listen, we got it. We're like running so long. This is going to be like a two hour episode here. And I maybe it's warranted for this album. Let's find out. Is this a must hear album before you die? Adam, what say you, sir? Before I say yes, I'm going to take it back to a question that you had asked earlier, which was who knocked this album out of number one after it had spent it there for, for just a week? It was the Guess Who with American <laughs> Woman. 
Take that, you dirty hippies. All right. American uh, Woman sucks. sucks, by the way. Listen, I like the get too, but that song blows. Don't worry. The B side was No Sugar Tonight, which is much better. Okay. Right, now we're talking. Yeah. That right. guitar tone on American Woman is pretty great. That. Yeah. No weird note. It's a that. real weird yeah. note. Yeah. It's been soiled it, by Kravitz for me. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a yes for me. Well, let's move this thing along. <laughs> All right, Phil, what, what say you? I, uh, I, I'll just give this a yes. This is an easy yes. This is a 10 out of 10 yes. Rob. Yeah, it's obviously a yes. It's one of the most perfect records of the era, certainly, maybe of all time. I can't imagine not enjoying this. Get your life. Listen to this one. Seriously. I have only had one easier yes, and that was Dark Side of the Moon, which is <laughs> one of the greatest albums of all time, and this is right up there with it, and I do not say that lightly. Absolutely, listeners, listen to this album. It is goddamn fantastic. You will not regret it. So there we have it. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, you are on the list. Everybody but David Crosby, feel free to contact me, and we can talk about my critique. <laughs> David Crosby lived to 81 years old, by the way. Wow. With that second kidney or second liver or something. Second liver. And who knows what else was making him, I mean, spite maybe was driving right. him to 81 years old, but good for him. Y'all are on the list. We have a few things left to do. I'm going to throw it over to Rob. We're going to reach into that mailbag. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, we have one missive today. It's from our good friend of the show, rocker Conan Neutron, recent guest on our Stooges Oh, nice. Episode. How does he have time? I, to write us I an email. Man, I don't, I don't understand this. Stop. The, the man is busy. We're going to have him back one of these days, but he is very busy making music and touring and doing a million things, having a podcast, Protonic Reversal. But anyway, he writes in, fellas, really enjoyed the Hanoi Rocks episode, ah. a band that I've heard about for years, but I've avoided for some reason. The thing about Spotify being wrong is fascinating. Just a quick update for the listeners. I talked to Spotify I actually got a real human being to acknowledge the problem. That said, it has not been fixed yet, so feel free to continue to submit through the form in the link of the episode notes of that episode. Contact Spotify support. Double down on the show's request to get it fixed. Let's help get it fixed. Conan goes on to say, Anyway, I wanted to write after I'd heard the entire episode because I wanted to see if you were going to mention the TV show the recent HBO TV show Peacemaker, in which Hanoi Rocks, and this record specifically, features heavily in a bonding sequence. Really? Apparently, one of the characters, the John Cena show Peacemaker, revolves around loving Hanoi Rocks, and Hanoi Rocks gets multiple mentions through the season of this show, and they play some Hanoi Rocks tunes, and there's even a guy with a Hanoi Rocks tattoo in the show. Rob, wow. you meant to say a bondage sequence, right? Not a bonding <laughs> sequence. Basically, John Cena is a huge Hanoi Rocks fan. Or that's what I'm left believing, is that John Cena, the human being, is actually a big Hanoi Rocks fan because it seems like a weird detail they would have snuck in based on what I've watched of the clips. So anyway, listeners might have been thinking that because that was a show that's been on recently. People have probably watched it. Good call. I want to point out that I did watch the sequences, at least with the Hanoi Rocks material in that show, and they were all taken from albums other than the one we covered. Ah. So I still don't understand why that particular Hanoi Rocks record made it to Robert Diamery's list. It seems like they have better material out there, but I digress. It's because Robert Diamery saw them play one time in London when he was like 18 years old. I'm just like, this is the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> 
Perhaps, perhaps. Anyway, we love hearing more context about the bands. We came here to learn. We're doing the show so that we can learn. We try to learn as much as we can in a week of research and report it back to you. But if you have anything you want to tell us to add to our understanding, to add to our audience's understanding, we encourage you to write into 1001 album complaints at Gmail. Thank you very much, Rob. And again, I do want to just stress for all the people that are about to write us, yeah, we're going to miss some stuff. We're going to get some stuff wrong. We had somebody tell us recently that we don't know anything about punk and uh, post-punk. Yeah, absolutely don't know anything about that. Not my genres, not our genres, generally speaking. We try to get as immersive as we can. Uh, We'd love to hear more about what we missed. And so... Let's talk about what we are going to cover for the next week. I got the old Albinator there. It's been helplessly hoping in the corner that we're going to get through this fucking episode. It's been going on for like two hours now. And I am going to spin that old wheel and see what we are going to do next week. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is apparently just the letter D, and it is by the band White Denim. Can I take a stab at it? Because I have no fucking idea what this is. Hair metal? No, the White Denim's a new-ish. Yeah, they're modern. Yeah, I've actually, believe it or not, seen them at a union transfer. Phil, did I go with you in Philly back in the day? No, I've heard they rip, though. I think their story is that, like, Jimmy Fallon saw them. Like, you know, at some club in New York City or something. I was like, come play our show. I don't know. Oh, shit. The, All right. the real story will come up, I'm sure, next week. So, listen to the album D by the band White Denim. Please like, subscribe, do all that other great stuff. Tell a friend about the show. We would love to hear that. We've had a great time talking about CSNY's Deja Vu. Thank you for listening all the way to the bitter end of this episode. For 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Tom. I'm Adam. I am Phil. And I'm Rob. Boosh. We're going to dub in three other guys doing boosh over that. It's going to sound angelic and perfect. (laughs) 